Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sama samputasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sama samputasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sama samputasa Bhutang damang sangkang namasami So I wanted to speak about, you know, what, what is dukkha actually, what does this word um, mean? Because it's quite often misunderstood and mistranslated and has, you know, given a bad impression to one of the central... Um, tenets of, of Buddhism because it was translated as simply as suffering and in reality what it means it uh, means essentially unsatisfactoriness and not suffering because in order you know, to suffer there must be someone who is attached to a particular thing and um, if there is no attachment then there is no suffering but there is still unsatisfactoriness because dukkha is one of the three characteristics of, of existence or one of the three seals, how it's sometimes expressed, or the three signs or the three qualities of reality. And if we you know, can uh, open ourselves to that truth, then there is no suffering but there will still be, you know, instability, uncertainty, unsatisfactoriness, but not necessarily suffering because it's not inherent in reality. It always needs, uh, needs an ego, you know, to be attached to any particular thing and then the suffering will occur. And the, the word dukkha stems from the Sanskrit word ka, which means axle hole in the middle of a wheel or it could also come from the word star which means stand to stand together with the prefix dus which means difficulty or badness and then you know together this could mean either disharmony friction uneasiness or uncomfortable and you know a way to bring that word together, we could say unsatisfactoriness. And, or you could say like a bumpy ride, if you imagine you have a, an axle which doesn't really fit well into the axle hole of the wheel, then the chariot or the vehicle you know, doesn't really um, go very well. And everybody who is sitting in that vehicle will kind of experience this friction. And that's what's really meant with dukkha. And dukkha is, you know, is the second actually of the three characteristics of existence. The first one is, is impermanence. And then through, you know, through seeing impermanence clearly, the notion of, of unsatisfactoriness becomes apparent because that which is impermanent, that which is constantly changing, is of course 
not able you know, to give lasting satisfaction or cannot be relied upon. And you know, the insight into impermanence is, is, not, is most central to the Buddha's own path and his own journey as well. For example, you know, when he, as is at least as it's written in the suttas, is when the Buddha for the first time, you know, saw clear signs of impermanence that motivated him to to step out of his previous life as quite a privileged, you know, young man, and you know, deciding to leave everything behind and and. Uh, go on a quest and what he saw was he saw old age, sickness and death in the form of, of three different people appearing to him and for the first time in his life he really made that connection that it's not happening only to other people, it's also happening to him and then he felt you know, he wanted to understand this better and then he, you know, stepped out and visited different teachers and tried to really go to the root of this. And, and then, you know, in the night of his enlightenment, again, it was impermanence which became apparent when he was reflecting on his past lives, his countless past lives he has been going through. And then also he was reflecting on the arising and ceasing of other people, of other beings. And those two, you know, reflections brought him to that uh, brink of uh, the breakthrough to enlightenment. It, it was again impermanence, which was very pivotal insight, you know, which helped him to um, see the way things really are. And through you know seeing impermanence clearly, uh, disenchantment you know is is the result of that. And you know that's not like a a disenchantment in the sense of that you know everything is is a negative or everything is. Uh, you know, useless or not to be uh, related to. But it's more like the insight that everything is different than how it looks to be. And then, you know, that can be an incentive to kind of even go into a more strong relationship with it and, and look more clearly and go into the depths and go under the surface to really understand, you know, these appearances which we are meeting, you know, inside and outside of ourselves on an ongoing basis. Some of them are really very beautiful, some of them are scary, and some of them are neutral. But what they all have in common is that, you know, in the depths they are constantly changing and they can't be relied upon, and they can't be owned. That's what they all have in common. They all are impermanent, which is anicca in the Pali language. 
they all are unsatisfactory or unreliable dukkha and they all cannot be owned. They don't have an unchanging essence to it. They don't have a self. That's anatta. That's what all phenomena have in common. And you know, and those phenomena in and of themselves, they are not trying to deceive us or you know, playing games with us. But it's just our way how we're relating to them, how we look at them. That's where the ignorance, you know, reveals itself. And uh, that's not inherent in the phenomena, but it's inherent in the mind which, you know, perceives the phenomena. And we can do something about it. Because we can train the mind by, you know, making the mind familiar with what's really happening. And for that, you know, we need a certain discipline. And the four foundations of mindfulness are, you know, such a framework of you know, giving us a, a structure so we can uh, get a foothold, you know. Like if you want to climb on a mountain, you, you just look what's the easiest way and you get one foothold and the next foothold and slowly but surely, you know, you climb up and the four foundations of mindfulness are such a, a system, you know, which enables us to I don't know what happened. Make it better. Okay. This is another example of impermanence. <laughs> so yeah, the four foundations of mindfulness. Uh, you know, such a very clear framework which helps us to, you know, get a get a hold of and, you know, be able to enter into the depths of the appearances. <coughs> and, uh, you know, it's a Dhamma door. There's, you know, every experience can become a door into reality. Every experience is a dhamma door. If it's pleasant or unpleasant or neutral, it doesn't really matter. But every experience you know, can be used for you know, deeper understanding the way things are and, uh, you know, and, and the inside meditation uses those four foundations of mindfulness and just uh, you know, stopping and uh, taking our experience as an object rather than, you know, being carried away by it. Just taking, you know, one bit at a, at a time as an object and then looking at this object. And if we are doing this, then those three characteristics, they become apparent all by themselves because it's just the way things are. We don't have to do anything other than just really take a, a good look. But many, you know, many times we are not able to do that because we get carried away so much by you know, our feelings, emotions, and all of this. That's why we need 
you know, the clarity of the of the four foundations of mindfulness, then when we remember we can pull ourselves out from that, you know, stream of habit, how we always have related to this trigger or that trigger. But if we have this framework, this is like something we can hold on to in order to be able to just stop the habitual way of relating and just looking what's really there. And I think you know, a very good example for that is, you probably have all done that, you know, if you're in the night, you have a flashlight and you turn it quite quickly, it appears to be like a solid ring of light. This is a, a very good example, you know, what impermanence is doing to us all the time. But because that process is so fast, we experience that which is a process as a, as a thing. For example, this thing, you know, my body or, or this uh, microphone, all of those, they are processes. But our sense organs, they are not able, they're not to discern that. That's why we need uh, instructions, because otherwise we wouldn't be able to, to see this. But when we follow the instructions, we can actually slowly but surely discern that very clearly. And in um, through seeing that disenchantment sets in, and through disenchantment, um, it's like waking up from a spell. And then you know, we can never go back again and believe in the same way as how we have believed before. And that means you know, we are setting out on the path and we, we just keep on looking. And slowly but surely you know, going more and more into the depths. And it being less easy you know, deceived by appearances. And we can still enjoy the appearances because some of them are really very beautiful and, and inspiring even. But we don't need to kind of completely um, believe in that. That's, you know, the middle way between two extremes. And that's, you know, one uh, way how the Buddha's teaching was, was uh, described as the, as the middle way between indulgence and um, um, suppression. And through, you know, being able to attend in this way, the path opens up and habitual ways of relating, you know, become clear to us and, and, and through, through seeing them clearly, they, they lose power over us. They wear out, so to say. And, you know, that's what, what is called dispassion. was like maybe five years ago, you know, you, or myself rather, you know, Phil was very, very fascinated by a certain you know, thing, and then maybe a few years down the line, <coughs> that has completely changed, and you can never go back to that. This is like if you, you know, seeing a, a, a magician, 
a show of a magician and then you have a peek behind the curtain and you see all of the props. Then even you, know, you can still enjoy the show, but you can never ever go back to believing some of those tricks because you have seen the props and that's it. You just need to see them once. And the whole thing breaks down. And I think, you know, full enlightenment would be that as well. You know, there's different stages of enlightenment where we, you know, have increasingly more insight into all of those props which are behind appearances. And by seeing them, the mind just can't form the same uh, perceptions anymore. That's just gone. And that's what we really are trying to cultivate here with this practice, you know, to slowly but surely break through those different networks of, of delusion which we are living with. And that is, is, a, is a process, you know, which has its own intelligence. We just need to start and, and not stop. And then it will find its way if we are, you know, if we are following a teaching which, which makes sense, then we just need to put in the energy. And it will slowly but surely unravel itself. Because that's laws of nature, you know, which are working, and and we just need to find ways to align ourselves with that process. And for example, you know, keeping the the precepts is is, may, is maybe the basic uh, foundation for for starting it, and and then you know attending to our experience with mindfulness is, is the next thing which needs to happen. And then, you know, reflecting on, on impermanence, on old age, sickness and death is also very useful. You know, give us a sense of urgency. And if we, you know, if we do those practices, then there is no reason that this should not work. And uh, you know, I hear people say in, in the interviews, you know, that the mind, they don't know how to let go. Several people have been asking, you know, how do I let go? And, you know, letting go is not, not something which we can do but we can prepare the ground by practicing, you know, the four foundations of mindfulness and, and uh, through practicing in that way, you know, break through those different habitual ways of deluded seeing. And then the letting go is, is the natural result, you know, disenchantment and dispassion and uh, cessation and letting go there the natural result of seeing clearly. And 
that's what we need to practice, you know, that, that seeing clearly and practicing the four foundations of mindfulness and the letting go is the natural result of it. We can't make that happen. But we can really pay close attention to our experience. That's, we can do that. And sometimes, you know, it feels kind of boring or we are too tired or any of the five hindrances, you know, which are coming up. But then, you know, we can take those hindrances also as as object to pay attention to. And then the hindrances themselves, you know, can become dhamma doors. As Ayanana Bodhi was mentioning today, the hindrances, you know, they hinder the mind from functioning properly. But we can use them also as objects for insight. And we have put up a poster on the way to the kitchen you know, about those six different bowls of water, you know, which are depicting the five hindrances and the mind without hindrances. The sensual desire is, is compared, you know, with a bowl of water which, is die, which, which has dye in it, and because of that, everything is seen, you know, through a certain colored filter. And then the mind, which is... Um, hindered with ill will and aversion is compared to a <coughs> bowl of water which is boiling and the bubbling you know, also gives not the, a clear picture of what's really happening the heat, the, the steam and the mind of <coughs> with sloth and topper is compared to a bowl of water which is uh, overgrown with water plants. Can't see clearly. The restless mind is compared to a bowl of water where the water is stirred by the wind. Can't see clearly again. And the doubtful mind is a bowl of water which, which has mud in it and can't see clearly. So those different Hindrances, you know, which hinder the mind from functioning properly. And, you know, functioning properly means knowing what is good for oneself and knowing what is good for others. And when the hindrances are present, then we don't know what is for our own good and we don't know what is good for others. So that's what it meant, what hindrances are. And we can use them for the practice, but just attending to them with, you know, with mindfulness, with awareness. For example, you know, there is aversion in the mind, instead of acting on it, just knowing there is aversion, not indulging in it and not suppressing it, just knowing that it is there and it's okay. And, you know, through attending in that way, we are we are basically cultivating, we are practicing what's called the anti-hindrances, which are the seven factors of enlightenment, which are like the essence you know, of, the, of what enlightenment is all about, and also they are the essence of how enlightenment can be cultivated. And the first one of those seven factors is, is mindfulness. So 
which means you know attending to whatever is happening any experience attending to it in the present moment with mindfulness making it an object which we are looking at with mindfulness and then letting that object speak to us and it speaks to us again of impermanence of unsatisfactoriness and of not self because all phenomena which means all objects which can be known speak of that there's not a single object there's not a single phenomena in this universe which is not functioning according to those three characteristics and that's you know what we want to realize it doesn't really matter what the object is, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. But what we really need to see is those three characteristics because then letting go will be the result of it. And depending you know, how deep we can see them, it, then it translates into a more or less deep letting go. And a complete letting go is nothing else but full enlightenment. And you know, in all the yanas, the, all the schools of Buddhism, they are all of one mind on this. They are all centrally, you know, arranged about trying to support letting go. That's all what they what they want to to kind of uh, support. That, that letting go of wanting things to be a different way from what they are and then suffering is the result of that. And the Buddha, Yana Buddha has been saying uh, what I'm teaching is, is it's only about suffering and the end of suffering. So that's, you know, the central intention with this teaching and there have been you know so many different uh, props have been given by the Buddha but they all fit you know into this uh, four foundations of mindfulness and they all are geared towards letting go and that letting go is basically an insight into three characteristics And it's not, it's not complicated, but we tend to complicate it because of our ignorance. So, you know, if, if we attend to a phenomenon, if we attend to an object with mindfulness, then, you know, we are at the same time we are, we are practicing the first um, factor of enlightenment or a factor of awakening and then if we really attend to a phenomenon with mindfulness then it reveals its true nature which is the three characteristics and that would be you know seeing that is the investigation of dhammas that's the second factor of enlightenment and if we you know, attend in that way that we start to see, you know, how those phenomena operate, 
we need also to put in some energy to, to be able to stay long enough. So that will be the third factor of enlightenment. Mindfulness, investigation of dhammas, and energy. So those three, they are at the beginning. You know, if we attain to anything, we need those three. And then if we, you know, if we can stay long enough and we start to discern clearly what's happening, then a certain amount of um, joy can be the result of that. Or like a feeling of, of uh, you know, exhilaration of, yes, you know, I, I can do this, I can see this. It's really like this. And, or we can also call it an interest arises, you know, which keeps us, keeps us practicing. And then when this interest arises, and we are really, be, and then we are able to stay with, with the practice, um, the whole, the mind starts to, to settle down. This would be the next factor of enlightenment, which is tranquility sets in. So mindfulness, investigation of dhammas, energy, interest, and then tranquility. And then if the mind is tranquil, the mind can concentrate, that is the sixth one. And then if the mind is concentrated, the mind has equipoise or equanimity. It's seventh factor of enlightenment. And through you know, the mind having equipoise and equanimity, it can, it can stay with the experience and it can bring in more mindfulness. And then there's a deeper investigation of dhammas. And then there is energy arising out of that. And you know, interest. And then there's more tranquility. And there's stronger concentration. There's more equipoise. And it's like a a spiral, you know, which goes more and more into the depths of the way things are. And that's, you know, the seven factors of enlightenment, which are constituting enlightenment and also are the path to enlightenment. And they are really the backbone, you know, of the, of the practice. And whenever there is no hindrances present in the mind, then there are other factors of enlightenment operating in a certain you know, in a, in, at least in a minimal way. And through the practice, we can strengthen them. And that's all, you know, what we are after, basically. You know, we are practicing the four foundations of mindfulness. We are trying to, you know, leave behind the hindrances and practicing the seven factors of enlightenment. And through doing this, we very clearly discern and see the three characteristics. And that's, you know, that's, that's the whole package of the teaching. And I brought a, a quote from the Anguttara Nikaya, which is one of the big books in the, in the canon. And it says, whosoever is emancipated from the world does so by removing the five hindrances, firmly establishing the mind in the four foundations of mindfulness, and cultivating the seven factors of enlightenment. 
So practicing the four foundations of mindfulness, removing the hindrances, and cultivating the seven factors of enlightenment. So it's, you know, I, I I'm not saying that it's easy to do, but, I, but what I'm saying is it's, it's very clear, the instructions are very clear and quite simple. And, you know, and letting go is the result of it. So it's like, you know, preparing the ground and then trusting that the letting go will happen by itself because we are aligning ourselves with laws of nature. And, you know, we have this very clear four foundations of mindfulness as a structure. We can hold on to that. And then we just need to just trust that if we come back to it again and again, that it's just doing the job by itself. We don't need to do it. And, you know, it's, it's just so important to not turn away from that which is unpleasant. That's really the big obstacles, you know, for all of us because we are, we are kind of addicted to pleasant feeling. And we have this kind of weird notion that if something is unpleasant, there's something wrong with it. Or that we are getting punished by, some, by life, or there's something which shouldn't be. And in reality, you know, there is pleasant, unpleasant and neutral feeling. And sometimes, you know, it's this and sometimes it's that. It has nothing to do with us. And it's very difficult to really understand that. But you know, if we can follow these practices, which I have been describing, then uh, this understanding you know, will reveal itself in its own time. And it's so important to not give up, you know, and to come back to it again and again and again. To just not collapse, you know, we don't have to be constantly putting in a heroic effort, but it's important to not stop and to just keep going and not stopping because it's, you know, because we are, today we are this and tomorrow we are that. We always can find a reason, you know, why we can't do it. And to just not believe in that, it's just like a hindrance, really. Because what a hindrance means, it hinders the mind from, from operating clearly. You know, it hinders the mind from operating for our benefit. So, you know, whenever you hear, you know, your mind saying something like that to you, then, you know, just take that as an object and look at it, really, and see, you know, what's underneath here. And, you know, there's just so many different ways how that can be expressed. And I, another body yesterday said, you know, checking in and not checking out, for example. That's one simple way of saying it. And then uh, another way of saying it is, if you can't get out of it, go into it. You know, if you can't get away from it, instead of trying constantly to run away from it, just turn around and just go into it. 
and go through it and come out the other end. That's the way to do it. And then our teacher, Archon Sumedo, he was always speaking about, you know, if you want to understand something, you have to really stand under it. You can't, you know, run away from something and at the same time expecting that ever understand how it works. You have to really fully stand under it and feel, feel it. And then you'll understand. Or another way of saying it is also, you know, to allow that experience or the suffering of that experience, you know, to open you up rather than closing down to it. To just really, you know, being willing to step in the center of it. And, you know, allow yourself to be opened by it. And this is, you know, sometimes not so easy to do. Because, you know, a way how the ego can be defined is the ego is a contraction which doesn't want to open up to the way things are. And, you know, the practice really gives us different... Uh, you know, instructions how we can actually coax the ego, you know, to put itself into the experience and not constantly, you know, just being just half there, being somewhere else with the mind already because always thinking it's going to be better somewhere else, it's going to be better in the future and not really fully attending. And then, you know, we are half-heartedly living our lives, never really getting into the depths, never really understanding what's going on and just repeating the same habits over and over and over again and and then suddenly we are dead and then we have wasted a whole lifetime and then we are, according to the Buddhist teaching, reborn again, you know, with the same set of habits and we're just doing the same thing again because that's what we take with us when we die. We take with us, you know, the, the habits which are informing our minds. That's what we take with us. We can't take anything else with us. The only thing which we don't want to take with us, <laughs> just it follows us like, you know, like a magnet. We, we pull it with us. There's nothing we can do. But if we you know, if we have the courage, you know, to really stand under it, then this is the only way how we can wear it out. You know, we have to wear it out through feeling through it. Nobody else can do it for us. Nobody. We have to feel it and we have to, you know, we have to really be with it and to wear it out. I, it's probably not especially um, inspiring news, you know, but it's just the way it is. And we can't escape from it, you know. And that's, that's just the way it is. But also, you know, we don't have to completely, you know, uh, go through 
every single action you know which we have been doing in the past to undo it by suffering through it but we, we just need to you know understand those three characteristics and then you know if if they are fully understood they can cut through ignorance and then the whole mass will just fall apart and the work is done. So you never know when that's going to happen. And you know this this um, way of, of practicing through you know disenchantment and this passion. You know this the, the habitual way of um, what's called in the, in the scriptures eye-making and mind-making. Eye-making is conceit, in, uh, according to the scriptures. You know, I am better than you, I am worse than you, and I am the same as you. That would be the eye-making. And the mind-making is all about you know, craving, in the sense of wanting and not wanting. Through this insight, you know, those two actions of the ego, they get worn out more and more, they get worn thin. And in order for that to happen, you know, we have to turn towards our experience. And we need to learn you know, to tolerate unpleasant feeling, because if we can't tolerate much unpleasant feeling, we won't get very far with this practice. Because it is pretty unpleasant sometimes, you know, to really take a, a deep look at, at our habits. And, uh, you know, what we can see through practicing that way is what reveals itself is, you know, that, that ego, you know, which is, is a, a contraction, you know, which is It's a way of, of defending against the vastness of our minds, you know, of what, what the mind can really be. The ego is, is, is a defense structure which, you know, which has had a function, but then, you know, we, had, we, we, make, we, we are making more out of it than what it needs to be, and then we're getting so used to it that we're completely forgetting everything else, and we are, it's all... Everything is just about, you know, protecting it. And that's what we need to understand. And there's this beautiful um, description of the process. Grasping is not done by the self, but the self is done by grasping. So now there is no self-grasping, but the action of grasping appears to be a self. That's how it, how a human being experiences that. And so it's very important you know, to look at the the grasping in in our own experience in terms of wanting something or not wanting something. It's both grasping. And to really kind of take an interest in that. And then we will see you know that there's nobody who is doing the grasping, but the grasping itself, you know, produces that mirage of a self.
There's nobody behind the grasping. It's just a habitual way of relating to experience which can be, you know, seen for what it is and which, which can be deconditioned through the practice. And the, the four foundations of mindfulness are the perfect structure for us to, to attend to the grasping and to wear it out. And then the self disappears. We don't have to do anything about it. That's just the result of it. Because the self has never existed. It was just in the mind. So I hope I haven't confused you more than... Uh, and, uh, because my intention was, you know, to support your practice. And I just hope, you know, that you can bring up the energy to just attend to your present moment experience. And through doing that, you know, there's nothing which can't be used for practice. Everything can be a, a, a dhamma door if, if it's a hindrance or if it's a mindset like joy or interest or tranquility. All can be used as dhamma doors into seeing the way things are. Thank you.